0: Paracast
1: with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piedi. So we sure got a lot of letters in response to our interview last week with Lisa Lindley. She says her family is the victim of demonic possession, but everybody pretty much came to the conclusion that we came to, that a lot of that was focused on her daughter. The only way to know is to be there and investigate it, I think. Otherwise, it's all conjecture. I I suspect very much so. And I think regardless, she's going to have to, if she wants to get beyond just sitting there believing that it's all demonic possession, she's going to have to open up her vistas and try to find out what kind of damage psychologically has been done to her daughter. I don't know, Gene. I
2: suppose in the end, it's really hard to make calls about other people's realities. And look, everybody has to try to understand things in the framework of their cultural upbringing and of the reality they live in. And so I think that in that case, I, I understand where people are probably quick to judge her as far as her religious beliefs and her trying to understand what's going on in that framework. Realistically, anything could be happening there. We really don't know. I think that it is interesting, though. There was someone on the forums that brought up the idea that she was hesitant to go to a therapist with her daughter because she didn't want to sort of put her name out there with this uh, reality and
1: the story. But yet, I mean, she has written books about this. So So her name is out there. Yes, of course. Yeah, The die is cast. Her name is out there. Maybe she was afraid of the stigma attached, and some people have a stigma attached to psychological treatment they feel yeah. that if that happens well she's going to be put upon at school the kids are going to be cruel they're going to say oh you're just a crazy lunatic but at the very least i think she's trying to live in a bit of tunnel vision here because she could have at least tried to get information from other students i mean if that thing in the gym yeah. The thing in the yeah, gym at the it. school if this is really yeah. happening then certainly other people witnessed it And that's the beginning and end of the story. If it's only witnessed by the daughter, she has to look more closely at the daughter's situation. But if other people witnessed it, other people confirm it, well, that can be an entirely different event, something a lot more significant, too. But I would think, though, that if that was the case, that would get back to her because the kids would be telling their parents. They'd be telling the people at school, the teachers. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. If you live in a small town, it's really
2: difficult because everybody will know. And there's no undo button on life. <laughs> once once you let that cat out of the bag, that's it. And in that sense, I suppose I could understand someone's apprehension, but she has put books out under her real name. So ultimately, it, it, the story's out there. Her name's out there associated with the story. And uh, I mean, in the same way that the stuff I've talked about on the Paracast, my name is associated with some stuff now that, that never has been. And... To go one step further, it's those things are, you know, my, my stories about my experiences and my name are now connected on the Internet. So anybody who does a search on me is going to come up with this stuff. And once you go down that path, Gene, that's a one-way street, I think, and, and that's that. So you deal with the repercussions of it. And, um, look, if she finds some answers by putting the story out there, then, then power to her. Without us being there, looking into what's going on, experiencing it ourselves, ultimately, we won't know what her and her family are really going through.
1: Unfortunately, my feeling here is that she's not so much looking for answers as telling people, this is how I solve the problem with our faith. But she hasn't Mm -hmm. solved the problem because the encounters, whatever's causing them, are still occurring. She hasn't stopped anything. She's simply found a coping mechanism. Well, and maybe that's enough for other people. Maybe if you just have a way to handle life. Look, ultimately,
2: you get through life one day at a time. So do you solve your problems? Well, does it really matter if you survive from day to day? You're one step ahead of the game. Because the alternative is, you know,
1: well. Well, in our case, the alternative is not something that we'd want to get into. In any case, tell us, David, about our guest for this week. This is my fault? (laughs) Yes, I'm going to blame you for this one. Okay. No, no, no.
2: This is Jeremy Vaney's fault. It's Jeremy's fault. Tell us. You're not going to make me explain that, right? Yes, please. I think, I think he should have to explain it. I don't feel like explaining it. That's right. Just like Sarah Palin, I don't want to have to explain anything. Ask the other guy. Ask Jeremy. It's his fault. It's all about his upcoming uh, motion picture. The truth, pollution of truth. It's Jeremy's fault. That's all I can say. Go to his uh, Valiance blog and go look at his trailers for his movie
1: and you'll understand. I don't know what. You'll understand something. I'm not sure what. Well, we understand that Paula Harris, who has written on the subject of the paranormal and has done lectures and has written blogs and has done a lot of research into the subject and some things that we might have a question about, but we're going to find out what she has to say coming up next on the Powercast.
3: I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
0: In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, comes something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. It is reality. Paris, David Bassett. David Biedny. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. <laughs> but Richard Gordon. Richard Dolan. Bye. Hopkins, Dylan Blodno Michael Mannion Melissa Jeff Ritzman Giorgio sukos G- Jeremy Fainy and Farrier Duzo Special presentations by Combustion Motor Corporation Masahiro Kahata and the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth solution of truth For more information and to order tickets please visit www.culturecontact.com Once again that's www.culturecontact.com Contact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though.
2: Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at paracast.com. That's news at paracast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will, too. You're in
0: the with B. a little David You never know what's going to happen next.
2: Paula, how did you originally get interested in the topic of UFOs? Does this go back to your childhood?
3: Oh, no way. I don't think anybody normal gets interested in the topic of ufos it's not it it, it happened in when i It was in my 30s and i saw close encounters of the third kind in the 1970 79 i think and uh i just saw it in the movie theater and had like an emotional reaction to it especially the ending that scene there where the you know the craft lands and francois Truffaut has that interaction with the beings Mm-hmm. And then I saw that uh, Alan Hynek was a consultant with Spielberg. And at the time, you know, coincidentally, I was teaching science fiction, and I started doing some science fact kinds of research, and, and I was invited to a wedding in Chicago, and uh, I decided to go into CUFO, the Center for UFO Studies. I never thought Hynek was actually there. I thought he had a lot of staff, but then he came walking around the corner with his pipe, you know, his famous pipe. And... He asked, uh, you know, who I was, and he realized I was Italian, and he asked if I would work with him and do some translation for six years, and I actually did. I worked with Alan, became very friendly with his family. He had had me in uh, Evanston, Illinois uh, with his family. He knew my kids. We went on vacation together. And so when I started working with somebody that was that credible, that was a scientist, that was an astronomer, I I knew from the very beginning it was real.
2: Really, so I, I know in my own personal case, my interest in this topic does indeed go back to some childhood experiences, and with a lot of the guests we've spoken with, that, that seems to hold true, but you're saying you didn't actually get interested in, in this until your 30s.
3: Yeah, and then, you know, I have thought about whether I had something when I was a child, mm-hmm. some kind of experiences, and haven't been able to come up with anything, and yet I don't really think I want to do the hypnosis thing. So, I don't know. I mean, it isn't normal for somebody to be this involved unless you have something in your life. I agree 100%, but I can't tell you what it is.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you something, Paula. This is Jean, by the way. I know she has a problem telling us apart, and so do we, even though we live 2,500 miles apart. But the thing is here, I don't have a sighting or any paranormal encounters. In my history, I had some strange recurring dreams when I was younger, and maybe they're worth exploring at some point in time. But I got involved in this at the age of 11 without any overt experiences to fall back on. So there we go.
3: Well, 11 like what? Were you reading books or movies, or how did that happen?
1: Now you're interviewing me.
3: Hmm. Yeah, well, I am. That's my job. I'm like Barbara Walters of ufology. She's like,
1: <laughs> okay, I'm we're in trouble to... now. Okay, well, Barbara Wawa. Okay, <laughs> well, okay, here's how it goes. Very simple. I was visiting my brother's house. He had a book called Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Kehoe on his coffee table. I said, can I borrow this book? He said, yes. And that's where it started. Very simple. Oh,
3: Okay. Well, but, you know, that's very interesting.
1: And now you know the rest of the story.
3: Yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and I know David because I met David in New Jersey. I think. Atlantic City, yeah. Atlantic City, right. And he is, you know, one of the, the lucky people that has had contact, that speaks from experience, you know. So,
2: well, now why would you say lucky? That's an interesting choice of words.
3: Yeah, because, I mean, you you know, Dealing with this, and I've dealt with it for thirty years since Heineck, Sometimes I think I'm going crazy because I don't have any, anything personal. I've never seen anything, and I haven't had any contact. So what I try to do is, is you know, just report the story and I, you know, people that are involved, whether it be positive or negative or whatever, at least know that they have a personal involvement.
4: Hmm.
2: See, my assumption is that I have a personal involvement with my life. And uh, there are a variety of things that happen in life that may or may not make sense in the context of what I'm brought up to expect. I try not to make assumptions about things in this field because um, uh, they're just usually not useful because they rely on a body of knowledge that, that I don't think we have. Well, and I suspect that, that, well, I was going to say I suspect we differ on that. No,
3: but no, I agree 100%. Um, I don't think we have a body of knowledge. I don't think we have a science to explain it. I think... It's you know for me it's still a mystery. I have no conclusions, and I, I heartily agree. I agree that but I'm wondering when we will have this body of knowledge. You know, but because we're all going in this direction, and and uh, you with the radio shows and me with the, you know, with the magazine with doing the interviews, and you know, I still have no idea what in the world's going on
1: well let's take a look at some of the things you might have discovered Now, the first time you and I talked on the telephone we've talked I guess once or twice you mentioned something about meeting up with Philip Corso Mm
3: -hmm. in
1: Italy was it
3: no no in Roswell it was was an amazing coincidence okay it was in Roswell in my book connecting the dots I talk about the coincidences in my life I mean one of them was meeting Hynek because I did not think he was there and, and everything and the other one was that my, when my office flew me to, to Roswell, cause I was living in Rome. I lived in Rome for 15 years. I just came back to the United States last year. But um, you know, when I was in Rome and, and my editor from, from the magazine sent me to cover the 50th anniversary, I went reluctantly. I didn't really want to go. And he, they asked me to cover it and, and get hold of this new book this day after Roswell and meet this Colonel Corso. Well, you know, I, I appeared there and and by coincidence had the room next to Corso, even though the whole entire city had been booked since February, there was one room available, and it was the one next to Colonel Philip Corso. And then I spoke to him, did my job, and invited him to Italy, knowing full well that he was the head of intelligence in Rome from 1944 to 1946, that my boss and all the Italians had done their homework and researched him and and his involvement in Rome. So he he accepted the invitation, came to Italy twice. He gave us his personal handwritten notes. We published the day after Roswell in Italian went out, you know, to thousands of people and his handwritten notes, which are different from the book, was published in a book called The Dawning of the New Age, L'Alba di una nuova era and that is in every bookstore you can find in Rome. And so that's what happened with that. And now
1: that, okay, this raises a lot of questions that we've talked about in connection with Philip Corso. And that is that people who dispute what he said in the book The Day After Roswell point to specific errors in the book. Now, you're telling me these notes have different content. Any specific differences you can point to that would clarify this?
3: I do know that it was, you know, co-written by Bill Burns. Um, I do know that Bill Burns and Corso's son have a company called Corso Holdings. Uh, I do know that, that the part that I think is disputed is a lot of the Roswell part, which is not in his notes, that was put in by Bill Burns. And I also remember a conversation with, with his son, Phil Corso Jr., that said that sometimes the only way you can put out a book is by putting disinformation in it so people can argue it down.
1: Okay, so and basically you're like saying here, statement. okay, okay, let's talk about that. A lot of the Roswell information that you're saying was put in this book. Did Bill Burns make it up? Did Phil Corso give him his information? Him. Was there any Roswell-related information
3: in your version of the book? When we did the Roswell book, we had to do it word for word, uh, how, how Simon & Schuster put it out. But in The Dawning of a New Age, it's a whole different, it's, it's his handwritten notes. About his personal experience and his, not only about the back engineering, but he also talks about the, seeing the autopsy of the, uh, beings. He talks about a personal contact he had. And he talks about some of the individual back engineering.
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Pilots. Personal yeah. contact with uh-huh. aliens?
3: Yeah, you know, it's in my book, Connecting the Dots, word for word, the interview he gave me. He gave me a contact interview that he had had contact and, I, um, as a journalist, said to him, I'm not printing this because they're going to think you're crazy. I'm going to just stick with the back engineering stuff. And it wasn't until after he died that I printed, and I have the audio tape of the contact experience that Colonel Corso had. So when he died, then I put it in my book because I have the audio tape. That was the original interview I got in Roswell, which absolutely floored me because I had trouble. You know, digesting this, so I wasn't going to put it out there.
4: Well, what <laughs> were the specifics? If
3: you want me to talk about it, I'll talk. Yeah, about
2: yeah, yeah. It. Please, what were the specifics of what he was claiming as a as a direct contact?
3: Okay, he said that uh, when he was the head of um, a missile battalion, I think he said it was Red Canyon area in New Mexico, and he was the head of that missile battalion. It's on his CV. He said that um, he had been asked to shut down the uh, radar uh, at certain times of the day. Because I guess that rare is what brought some of these crafts down. And he said one time he didn't do it like he was supposed to, and he was flying over an area of the desert and saw a craft there. And he said that he basically brought the plane in, came over to the craft alone in a staff car, saw it appearing and disappearing, and wasn't quite sure if it was solid, so he threw some cactus under it, and he said it squashed the cactus. And he said, from the left-hand side of his vision, out of a cave came a being. And actually, there is the actual drawing of the being in my book, Connecting of the Dots, the one he sent me by fax in Rome. And he said, the being came out of the uh, the cave. He said it had a headband on with a stone in the front, had a one-piece suit. He said it looked a little oriental, you know, how, you know, the face. He said he pulled out his gun, because Colonel had not only a gun on him a lot, he had a knife, uh, that he would take to himself. He, he's a typical Italian, you know. He, he had these things that he carried with him, and he said, he pointed the gun at the being and he said, friend or foe? And the being answered telepathically, neither. And, and he's the being said to him, Do you want to come aboard and see? And Colonel Corsa said, I know what you people can do. I, you know, I know what you're all about. He said, What do you have to offer me? And the being telepathically said, A new world if you can take it. So that when I met Colonel Corso, he had written that on a napkin. He said, "Do you know what this means?" I said, "I haven't the slightest idea." And so he refused to go aboard. But the being said, "Will you please shut down your radar so I can take off?" And the Colonel made a decision at that point. He said, "A professional one," where he did shut the radar down. He even names the man that he called at the central, you know, control place and he and he shut the radar down he said he saw the beam take off in a flash and you know that's quite a story to make up I mean when I saw I had a hard time so I, I kept it I kept the tape and he when he came to Italy, he repeated this story over and over again to a lot of people his son also told me about the story in my book connecting the dots I just went ahead and put everything he said because of all my interviews the word for word and this idea of a new world if you can take it was was a really uh, obsessive thing with him
2: what did he think it meant
3: oh i what he thought it meant it meant that there <laughs> had to be some kind of dismantling of the present world to create some kind of new world but the new world was based on a new science he said there had to be the creation of a new science because the science that we had today couldn't explain any of these phenomena. Yeah, yeah he came to italy and talked about this new science whatever that he wanted to create you know there was beneficial
2: was he more specific than
3: that he, he talked about he said that the you know part of the artifacts he got were he said he talked about There were two lasers actually not just one and he said they could be used for medical purposes he said what he had he said was used for arms and to you know to bring ahead the the significant edge the army had because he talked for the army he spoke for the army he did not speak for the Air Force, which came about in 1948. And God knows what artifacts they got too. He said uh, that that basically that we don't know anything about the paranormal. That the paranormal is probably dimensional. We need to look at that because things happen in that field and that are not explained. And just because science can't explain them, means that that some other kind of science needs to get its you know hand around these things and and not start from uh, the fact that they don't exist. And he, I felt that Colonel Corso himself was very unusual Uh, as a person. He could look at a document, memorize it in two minutes, and he had these talents that he used, because when he was the head of intelligence in Rome, he was only 28 years old, almost 30 years old. So he was kind of a very, very intelligent man who realized that there was a dimensional world.
1: Okay, Um, now none of this appears in Day After Roswell no I know <laughs> okay now have you talked to bill burns at all oh, yeah. about what his impression of all this is and obviously we're getting your reaction obviously we would have to ask bill what he has to say about it but what does he have to say about this particular set of meetings you had and what you've published
3: uh, he knows about the story of the, of the uh, being because it was on uh, it was on the I think it was on the history channel he he produced a show on Corso and talked about the being on the History Channel, the band that the being had. Corso said they had that band, uh, as a communicator. Uh, Bill has done these shows on Corso. Bill has all, uh, Corso's material, but he's gone farther than the Colonel Corso story and now he's working on, with the Alien Hunters on television. Bill is, is more commercialized. I mean, he's a commercialized part of the Colonel Corso story. He isn't just an independent researcher so yeah he he knows about all of this and and uh... and you know when he talks about it he, he he's given lectures at the ex-conference on this same thing his son also his son goes a little bit farther because he talks about time travel colonel corso's uh... notes the dawning of a new age which has not come out in the united states i've talked to bill about that these are the personal notes talks about time travel extensively, because Colonel Corsa really believed that the beings at Roswell were time travelers, they were us from the future. So I don't know if people know that. Uh, That's very, very, very interesting.
1: Why hasn't it come out in the United States?
3: I can't answer that. I wish I could. I'm frustrated about it <laughs> because people are buying the Italian book and translating it.
1: <laughs> There's no American translation of this book. You have to. No. Know Italian.
3: Okay. <laughs> if they wanted to, I talked to Bill at Roswell this year, and I said, "What are you going to make this come out?" I said, "I'm tired of having to defend Colonel Corsa," and he said, "Oh well, we'll we'll print it, you know, soon or whatever." <laughs> and so I, was, I said, "Please do it because it it'll stop some of the criticism here."
2: in um, analyzing UFO encounters we, we tend to find certain consistent elements things like disc-shaped craft small gray beings uh, with uh, elongated eyes black eyes the uh, specific description of uh, a being with uh, some sort of a, a stone or crystal on its mounted and some kind of a headband on its head is not one that I've ever really heard of Paul have you done research to see if that specific visual element is uh, recurs in
1: other encounters. Hey neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web. Save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit Gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's Gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic, again the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today.
0: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri?
1: Before we talk about headbands, we're talking to Paula Harris, UFO investigator, on the PowerCast this week. Okay, so what about the headbands?
3: No, I, I haven't heard uh, that kind of story from uh, you know others. But I did ask Clifford Stone about a, uh, what if there is an interface, a crystal or something that's used to interface, in other words, to communicate. And he told me yes, and he told me that. At times, you know, there was a time he had access to this kind of interface or crystal. And uh, not necessarily in a headband, but I just, you know, in my interview with Stone, I asked him about that since Clifford Stone, uh, you know, says that he worked for the Army cleaning up crashes and, and thought he was in a nuclear biological unit that did this. and uh, You know, I was curious. And he said there have been crystal interfaces. So you I know, don't know what that Stone is. I yeah. mean, I imagine... It's
2: that. Paula, one of the things that's become a very dominant topic in the U.S. media these days, certainly uh, in recent times, is the whole Sarah Palin um, issue, uh, John McCain's uh, vice presidential running mate. And one of the things that has really gotten McCain into a lot of trouble is what appears to be the fact that Sarah Palin was not really vetted by the McCain campaign. They kind of brought her in at the last minute and didn't really do the proper due diligence on her uh, and it's creating a whole variety of problems for them that obviously we don't need to talk about on the show, it's not a political show the, the reason I bring it up though I'm wondering as a journalist what is your process for vetting the people that you interview how do you do um, sort of background on them to figure out the veracity of their claims
3: yeah, that's a really good question the truth is that that I have to um, just Put it out there. If I think that someone is too, in other words, doesn't fit with what I've already been told in the last thirty years, and I think part of it is also seniority, the fact that I've been working in this area, you know for thirty years, I mean, I started with Alan. I was very, very naive when I worked with Alan Hynek. I thought everybody was crazy. I came from nuts and bolts. I used to say to Alan Hynek, are you listening to these people? These people, are, you know, have got the craziest story. How can you listen to them? And he taught me that the best way to do a story is to, to, to just listen without judgments, without conclusions and so forth. And he used to tell me, just listen, do not, you know, talk and so for six years I learned to listen and so how do I feel or know or to how do I deal with whether they're telling the truth or not the first thing I do and I have to be honest about this it's cost me a lot of money I won't do anything on the phone I have to fly there and and see the people and be with the people and just watch their body language and watch what they're telling me and it's cost me a tremendous amount of money uh, to do this I've flown all over the world and um when when I told you about Clifford Stone I've been at his house, house at least five times in Roswell I haven't done anything uh, you know over the phone all the people in my book I have 26 interviews uh, and they're all probably a little bit controversial but I've gone to see them and if I feel well they're telling me this story and they show me things in the case of of Clifford Stone he's shown me documents in the case of case of Michael Wolfe I have seen the documents on his wall and a lot of other things. You know, in the case of Clark McClellan, ground crew astronaut NASA, I was down in Florida for a week with him, and he showed me a lot of things, too. I have to decide whether just to put the story out there. And so what I've done in my books, really, is put the story out there, which is, you know, what I do. But how is that being
1: a journalist? Isn't a journalist supposed to look at that stuff and try to find what is true about it and not just say, well, they seem credible to me?
3: No, but I don't say it's incredible to me. What I do say is, here's a story, here's what they say, my questions are very good. You know, I like the idea that I can ask good questions. I've had people, you know, tell me after I interviewed them, boy, was that ever an incredible interview because you asked me questions nobody else answered. Asked me. One of the people that said that was Ed Boucher. I don't know if you know that case. Ed Boucher, who wrote Alien Rapture, who worked at Area 51 on the TR-3B. After I did his story, he said, you asked me questions nobody else asked. Well, you know, I'm trying to piece together a puzzle. And so I will ask a question based on my expertise from having met all of these people. And there, there's a lot of people in my books. I don't know if that
4: answers your
1: question or not. Well, it sounds to me as if you're presenting the stories unedited, just presenting what they have to say and maybe exactly. allowing the listener or the reader to say, we'll figure it out. We'll look at yeah, this stuff. Does, yeah. And yeah, but the only problem with that is, does that really help us get to any answers? If you're not vetting these stories, if you're not removing the stuff that is obviously questionable, You can come up with a lot of contradictory claims. I
3: have a question to ask. I start removing things. What part of that isn't censorship? I, I don't know what part to remove that wouldn't be censorship. A lot of it, I will tell you, I don't agree with, but I still have to give it to you. I have to still, you know, word for word, if the guy said that, I still have to put it out there. I don't agree with it, but, you know, I have to put it out there. So my job is to be as objective as I can, do kind of what Heinek said, just listen.
2: All right, so at that point, if you do that, and that's fine. Actually, technically, the definition of a journalist is someone who gathers and disseminates information without Hello, necessarily putting there? any kind of an editorial voice on it. So that's what you're saying, Paula, is that essentially you're presenting information, but you're not attaching any kind of decision about it. Am I, is
1: that correct? Mm-hmm.
3: I have a book that's coming out uh, in in February called All of the Above. And it's everybody else's take on it because I have no conclusions. And so I've asked top-level people in the field to give me what their conclusions are. And I think I'm being as fair as I can, you know, so that their ideas get out there, too. And so because I really, again, I'll tell you, I really don't know what's going on.
2: Okay. Let's take that, then. And let's now understand your involvement in exopolitics. Where, and I think it'd be useful at this point for you to explain to our listeners the term exopolitics and what you feel it encompasses.
3: Okay, now let me tell you that for many, many years I was a nuts and bolts ufologist, and then about five years ago, after meeting John Mack, Dr. John Mack, and talking to Bud Hopkins and a lot of people, I went speak, uh, kind of kicking and screaming into looking at contact because I I couldn't really handle that at the time. I wanted to stay with military and and intelligence interviews. So I started looking at the contact scenario. I looked at all of the sightings, and and I realized, if we know this is real, then what are we going to do about it? The definition of exopolitics is recognizing the extraterrestrial presence on Earth and its policy issues. In other words, issues of, of policy making and issues having to do with education and the issues saying what do we do now but we that know, is taking is a value
1: real. judgment. You're assuming this is an extraterrestrial phenomenon. Okay, we know there's spaceships. Now let's understand it. Is that correct?
3: Well, it, you know, it, it's not so much just even the spaceships. It's inter, it's a di- interdimensional. I, some of these beings don't use spaceships to go around in. I mean, but how do you
1: know that? You're making a judgment again.
3: Well, how do I know that? The case in Sardinia, the Car- 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 Caronia case, where these globes of light are coming out of the water. Interacting with appliances, a whole entire city of 144 people have been shut down, and I've talked to the military and intelligence people around that situation. They count, they consider it a UFO situation, and there's no craft. There's the balls of light.
2: But how do you know the ball of light is not a craft? If you are saying that you know that this phenomenon is extraterrestrial nature, then presumably you have come to some conclusions about things like propulsion systems, right?
3: No, I don't think I've come to the conclusion of propulsion systems, but doesn't extraterrestrial mean or interdimensional, because that's a part of it. It means not of necessarily of this earth.
2: What is your definition of reality, and what is your definition of this earth? See, this is the problem. The problem is that you are equating UFOs with the term extraterrestrial. Regardless of what our friend Stan Friedman says, there is absolutely no definitive evidence of any sort, anecdotal or otherwise, that these are extraterrestrial in nature. When you introduce the term interdimensional, interdimensional could be the explanation for a technique to travel the vast distances in space, or it could be a gateway to a coexisting reality with ours. The bottom line is that if you are making the statement extraterrestrial, then you've got to have some sort of logic that brought you to that place. And I'm asking, what is that logical process?
3: Well, see, I'm listening to what you're saying, and all of it is, it could, is possibility. The, the dimensional angle plus the parallel universes plus all of it, I think just for expediency, I use the word extraterrestrial because I mean, how? What else would you use for, for a phenomenon that doesn't seem like it's part of the known reality? This is the known reality. All I right. Would, well,
1: that only means maybe there are elements of reality that you don't know. Absolutely. I know. We can't assume that. So again, it sounds to me like the make
2: This is real simple. That is the the opposite of the known is the unknown. But at that point. In order to create any kind of a political dynamic with the unknown is, by definition, illogical. Politics involve a set of not only rules, but a set of not only assumptions, but hard knowledge, data sets about the culture, the, the society, my God, the species you're interacting with. So when we talk about setting up some kind of policy, you know, you're know, you involved. You're part of the faculty of the ExoPolitics Institute. Now, you're a teacher. A teacher has a curriculum. Curriculums do not just appear out of nowhere. They have to be based on a body of knowledge that you deploy in order to bring people up to speed in a certain area or discipline of interest. So if you've got an ExoPolitics Institute and you're offering certification – then there have to be protocols. My question is, how do you define protocols with the unknown?
4: Uh, well, that's the
3: unknown. But what would we have? Some that are known. We have crash saucers, so we have some that are known. If not, all okay, but we have
1: crash saucers. What do we really know about them? What evidence is out there that Hello? we can explore? What do
3: I know about them? Sure, or you said we have
1: crash saucers, Paula. You said we have yeah. crash saucers. Okay, that's fine. We have reports of things crashing. Now that we have them, what do we know about them? Who has them? And what have you seen about them? We're making assumptions again.
3: Well, if you want to go there, you can look at it that way. If you want to listen to some of the protocols that I've developed, that'll help solidify something that seems to be really ambiguous. Because in exopolitics, and I don't, you know, the, the certification program and the institute, that you know, you can interview Michael Sala about. But as far as knowing what this is. The need to, to study this is the number one protocol, and it needs to not be studied by ufologists. I really think there should be some kind of university or academic involvement here that's not that's past you know our involvement as ufologists because we're we're actually chasing our tails, a lot of us on this. Well, I agree so, with you. Beth, we,
1: so far, I agree with you right here that we need to have universities study this. But then we have to set up the parameters for the study. And again, we're creating a movement, it sounds like, where you're basically devoted to explaining the unknown. We don't know what the source of these UFOs might be it's gene we don't know the source of these ufos we don't know what their philosophy is we don't know if we can even understand what their philosophy it is we don't know where the craft might come from we don't know any of this how could we have exopolitics if there is no political aspects to explore we don't know what it is
3: gene can i just what I've developed, and there are chapters in the book. So, number one, the need to develop the discipline area. You agreed with that. Number two, is it our stuff or their stuff? Number three, visitors, are they from the future, dimensional visitors, and how are they connected with Earth? Number three, viruses and biological contamination. And that goes around the Virginia case mainly. I discussed that. Number five, con- communication with alien races. If it's ESP or mental communication, what does that mean as far as any kind of future communication? Number six, record, collect, and decipher these messages, including crop circles and the whole entire myriad of of, uh, knowledge. Seven, international cooperation and research criteria, and this has to be done with a body of international people, and uh, these are all policy issues for me in that if you're going to study this, it can't be individuals in little corners of the world doing their own thing. There needs to be some sharing, planetary sharing, of what's happening in all countries and done at a serious level because the words that, that Alan Hynek used, and I'll never forget them, he said, this cannot be studied by volunteers on weekends that take their time out to do it. It should be studied by professionals in the field. And it should be an international
1: thing. I go with you that far. I just think you're defining a few things here that we do not know about. Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
4: Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast with my two friends, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney.
1: Paula Harris, UFO author, joining us. We're talking about exopolitic that's where the discussion has turned, and we're trying to define our terms more or less here as to whether you're making assumptions or whether you have specific pieces of information we should explore further. David? I've uh,
2: taught at universities for a number of years. In fact, the day we're doing this uh, interview, I taught this morning at the Yale School of Drama, a class on digital media. When I teach at Yale, I have to submit to the school a curriculum defining exactly what I'm teaching. The school hires me because they have confidence in my professional background, one that uh, you know, I have a body of professional knowledge gained by direct involvement with the field. And um, the knowledge that I share with my students, the stuff that I teach them, is stuff that is directly applicable to producing media in the field under deadlines, under a tight set of restrictions, and making maximum use of the technology. There are a series of techniques, for example, that I teach students in terms of digital imaging, to understand exactly what things they're going to need to know in order to grab a graphic from the web and make it look good when it's projected on a 60-foot wide projection screen. There are a series of not theoretical, but practical, technical techniques that allow me to go from nothing to here is a final finished thing. And that is something that Yale requires of me, in order to be part of their academic environment when we talk about teaching this material in academia what you're talking about is bringing a body of understanding that attempts to decipher the unknown but in order to decipher the unknown for example you just threw out a series of topics paul and these topics involve all sorts of interdisciplinary knowledge if you're going to try to understand for example the sourcing of interdimensional beings you now have to have some underpinning involving quantum mechanics quantum physics advanced the- in many cases you know basically theoretical physics physics that is not based on experimentation, but is, is very squarely in the realm of mathematics. In fact, it's an interesting overlap between physics and mathematics, where we're sort of at the edges of what our instrumentation will handle in those areas. And it's very hard to have reproducible experiments in those areas. The gear to do that ends up being very expensive and very problematic, just like the LHC in Switzerland, which just broke down after God knows how much money was thrown at it. The point is that It's totally relevant to ask you questions about the curriculum at the Excel Politics Institute. You're a faculty member, which usually when you're a faculty member, you're involved in the creation of of curriculum materials and the actual educational statement of of the foundation. Again, I ask you, you just laid out all of these headers. Very interesting, all relevant topics. How do you then integrate specific areas of expertise in the scientific disciplines in order to support that curriculum
3: the curriculum is also based on a number of books that people have to read in other words what happens is the curriculum has you know weekly assignments around books people aren't reading anymore i mean they aren't doing research they want to get it from the internet or they want to get it from me as i'm speaking on stage or whatever A lot of what people need to do, and I support education 100%, is reading the work, and you mentioned Kehoe, you mentioned some people, you know, in the early years of the field that had real information you mentioned now quantum physics I met Dean Radin I met him at IONS in California I'm very good friends with Russell Tard a lot of these people are mentioned in my books also because I asked them these questions especially during the remote viewing years the, the whole entire idea of the advanced quantum physics uh, you know this is part of a curriculum it's a you know you have to decide like any course what books you're going to use what curriculum you're going to set up these students have to study I mean it's it's a curriculum and the way that they're graded is by integrating and by writing essays about what they've read and what they've studied and that's what I imagine a university course would be there is no preconceived conclusion there is no preconceived anything that comes from a final exam i find that a think tank approach to anything we do including you guys uh it would be so beneficial for the world and and we're in the think tank on this i mean can you tell me who's doing a think tank
2: Mm, i don't know that i know of anybody who is i think part of the problem is the application of logic when people think of think tanks very often in our culture The think tank is defined as, for example, a bunch of neoconservatives or a bunch of left-wing pinkos sitting in a room basically patting each other on the back, uh, creating not an environment of questioning but one of self-reinforcement, which at that point – actually does have a preconceived conclusion all ready to go. So the idea is to draw up arguments that support the conclusion, and that's what certainly right-wing think tanks do, as well as left-wing think tanks. So when you use the term think tank, part of the problem with most think tanks is that the last thing that gets applied is actual deductive reasoning and logic. What I think Gene and I are trying to, to sort of express here is that when you deal with the unknown, and i think we're we're all on the same page that so much of what we're talking about falls squarely in the realm of the unknown the only tool we really have is logic throw a little bit of intuition in and then also throw in experience in terms of experience uh, you know you could talk about things like direct experience experience talking to people in the field there are a lot of people who believe that having conversations is not necessarily a form of hard science i don't know that i Absolutely agree with that. I think but that's David, i David, was,
3: I was uh, nuts and bolts, and I out everything having to do with contact for about well, at least 15 years. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and it was because of my own. And I was using logic. I said it's not logical what they're telling me, so I'm not going to put it in the story. Or I didn't even did it with Corso, which you know, for me, I, I just wasn't ready. Logic may not be the only answer to finding the, the answer. And then I have to add one more thing that maybe is a little different for me. I have, a, you know, I was born in Italy. I have an Italian background. For me, a think tank is more like a Leonardo da Vinci renaissance kind of situation where all new ideas come forth, and there isn't any right or left wing anything. But I'm used to a renaissance kind of, of uh, you know, humanities approach because that's how I was raised.
2: So does every idea have the same weight in your mind?
3: So not really, because it depends on who it comes from. I mean, where it comes from, where the basis of it. I mean, it, what the experience of the person that you invite into the group is. You know, I it can't. Uh, you know, someone who can't talk about quantum mechanics, uh, especially the new one, if he's not like a Dean Radin type person or someone that's that's done a lot of studies in this. So. But the discussion, the dialogue, comes from not only a Socratic method. You know, the Socratic method was the way that, you know, you don't have a preconceived notion. Because I'm not used to this right-left wing, and you're probably right. Maybe the think tanks are financed by right-and-left wing groups of Mm -hmm. people. I'm used to, uh, you know, people coming together with their experiences from their different backgrounds, I mean, look what's happening with, with even the exopolitical situation is college professor. Uh, it's not a, a researcher, necessarily, that started this idea. Um, and having it be that maybe some little kernel of truth might come out of it.
1: Gene? Yeah, you know what? The thing about this is I think there has to be a more solid vetting process. I mean, you just can't throw everything in a big basket and say it all has equal merit. Now let's find out what's going on. And it sounds to me as if you're not getting to step two. You're starting with step one, throw it all together, and now let's figure out what's going on. Let's create our curriculum around stuff that we don't even know has any value. Now, we talk about, for example, alleged communications with alien beings. Now, we don't know that the contents of those communications, even if they are accurately reported, are genuine representations of what these aliens are up to. They may be engaged in deception. So suddenly, Agreed. so A suddenly. 300%. All right. So therefore, which communications do we listen to? Which communications do we ignore? And how do we make the decision?
3: Okay. Well, I'll tell you the the, the direction that I would like to go in. Uh, when I'm dealing with certain protocols, in in, in my book Exopolitics, I talk about them: our stuff or their stuff. And, and the need for looking at this, I would talk to the people involved. In other words, I'm very close friends with Robert Salas, who was involved with the, the shutdown of the missiles in, in, uh, you know, Maelstrom, or, you know, Larry Warren that was a Rendlesham forest. I'd rather deal with real concrete situations that could lead to matters of national security. I don't have books about contact because for me, and I've got to admit this weakness, it's very difficult to go there with with the messages from contactees and channeling don't even go there cuz I'm not sure who in the world is coming through and what in the world the message is so I think I tend to, to go back to my nuts and bolts background and deal more with what's happening I mean the viruses and so forth that I talk about the SOM 101 manual that the government put out Dealt with if you meet a being, you don't touch them, just like in the Virginia case when the the uh, military policeman died of, of contact with one of those little beings in Brazil. You know, I'd rather deal with these kinds of policy issues than dealing with a message or the message or what the agenda, which I think for me, and I don't know if you agree with this, is a total mystery. Well.
2: Okay. So the question then I would ask about that is that if we look on the Exopolitics Institute certification programs page, if we look at the website, what it it seems like what is put forward here is the idea that one could gain certification to be capable of representing our planet, our species with non human I'm going to call them non-human because I think that's what we're really talking about, not necessarily extraterrestrial. Let's just call them non-human. Here they're defined as extraterrestrial. And again, the assumption is if you have citizen diplomacy with extraterrestrial civilizations, you're starting from the foundation that you can create a framework that deals with beings from another planet, which means at that point, if you've gone to the, to the trouble of doing that, then I would make the maybe silly assumption that you would actually know that we're dealing with extraterrestrial beings. So, in any discussion of this, what we're talking about is politics with the unknown, really, a political interaction with the
1: unknown. You
3: know, which, that's really interesting because you're basically right. Well, I mean, you're basically right. And I'll admit that we don't know for sure any of this. However, right. Willie Striever, can I make another argument for this? Willie Striever wrote an article saying the elephant is stampeding in the living room. And the only positive or the only statement I can make about that is you don't wait until the elephant is stampeding in the living room before you try to figure out what to do. And I, I think that that's sure, my Sure, but wouldn't we
1: have to kind of come to a conclusion that, number one, there is an elephant. And what the elephant is, and then we worry about whether it's going to come stampeding into our living room.
3: no, I agree. The only thing is I'm very frustrated doing a show like this because I'd like to sit with you and ask you what you think, you know, because I really would love to know what you think, uh, you know because that would add to my being able to to answer your question. I mean what do you think it is so what do you think that these vehicles are figments of our imagination that nothing is driving them that um in other words, uh, that, you know, that there is no, that, that it's all either an illusion or, I, I'm really interested from the position of which you're questioning. I'm really interested what you're thinking. Oh
2: well, I'll, I'll answer that one. As someone who's had a, a very vast variety of paranormal experiences, I'll tell you what I think about this. I think that we are basically ants. We are ants and we don't understand anything outside of our nest. In fact, we're not as good as ants, because ants have a very strict caste system that allows them to be highly efficient. We, as humans, are not highly efficient. In many ways, we're sort of like these random machines that have some predictability, but are, are, I suspect our opinion of ourselves is higher than any advanced civilization's opinions of us, and so when we talk about things like exopolitics, I think that there is a, a a very basic problem with that topic in that it assumes that there is any level of even playing field in this discussion. The idea that an advanced species, and I and I have to believe that whatever it is we're talking about is more advanced than we are technologically. I'll only say technologically. Of course, I don't know that much about our spiritual evolution. I think by looking at events on the planet from an objective point of view, one could come to the conclusion that in terms of our spiritual evolution, it's probably a few thousand years behind our technological evolution. But that's just my opinion. I don't base it on anything but my opinion. The bottom line, though, is that any advanced civilization interacting with us would basically deal with us politically the way, the way that we would deal with ants politically, which is that there is no even footing. There, there's absolute, In fact, there's really not even much of a line of communication happening that is in any way useful. And from my own personal experiences, um, which I've talked about to some extent on the show, maybe to some extent not talked about, but that's the conclusion I come to. I, I, I kind of think that, In this whole topic, we are at a severe disadvantage. And I think, quite frankly, it's very vain to assume that you could create any kind of a framework for political interaction with this unknown that definitely appears to be vastly technologically superior to us, which means that in a fair fight, we don't have a chance. I mean, it's not even in consideration, and which is why, of course, I don't think that these things necessarily have destructive plans for us, because if that was the case, that would have happened a long time ago. At the same time, the idea that we could somehow sit down and have a discussion with these beings, uh, I find it, quite frankly, laughable. That's just my opinion,
4: though.
3: No, actually, you have a very valid opinion, and I'm listening very carefully and I think that that's probably the case with some races. That's probably the case. I don't believe they're all the same. i I, I believe that just probably there are some that are among us, and that there are you know, I think the commercialization of, of the alien gray in the United States is amazing. But I think if somebody studied historically, This whole thing, I I think that there could be some races that are not like that, that that are that were not property to them. Because you have a very valid point, and I I understand that. But what if they were? I mean, if you go, what if? Because you have to do a what if with a lot of this. What if there were some races that cared enough about humanity for some weird reason, either we were related to them or whatever, to see us surpass a very critical part in history. Then what you have is that you have a possibility at some point to communicate. And I'm not saying do it like we, the model of politics. What I care about more is the education and the fact that all countries are involved in this. I think that's my biggest passion. That it be a universal study, that it isn't just the United States that's doing this, but, you know, that, that, uh, you know, some kind of, like, like Einstein had, and Oppenheimer had suggested it in there, in their letter to Truman that there be some kind of super United Nations that's directly involved in this and I really think that the the energy that I'd like to put in it is number one all the 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 work that has been done before us the books that have been written the witness testimony that has done that has been put forth before us be studied seriously and if there is a, a half chance that there are groups and they're not all the same that would want to communicate in some way, and, and a lot of contactees, I guess, say that that happens, that that we get ready to look at this seriously instead of ignoring it and pretending it isn't there. The other side of the coin is let's just go on with our lives and pretend it's not there.
1: I'll tell you what, well, let's go on to our number two of the Paracast with Paula Harris. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. For our number two of our discussion with UFO investigator Paula Harris, we were talking somewhat about the ExoPolitics Institute with which she's connected. And I had some questions for you about that organization. And part of it comes from their mission statement. This is the mission Mm -hmm. statement on their website. So if you go to exopoliticsinstitute.org, you're going to see on the front page or home page this. The Exopolitics Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization dedicated to studying <clears throat> the key actors, institutions, and political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. Now, what I have been concerned about so far is the fact that, number one, we don't know what this extraterrestrial life is, we don't know if what we are seeing as UFOs represents this extraterrestrial life. So how do we have an organization which is exploring the key actors, institutions, and political processes? How does that work?
3: Well, there is there is a body of knowledge that goes a little bit way back if you do some investigation. For instance, the only way I can even explain this is that to describe to you the current class I'm teaching, which is called Hollywood, the Media, and Disclosure. And I have some documents that show that Walt Disney Productions way back in, you know, the 50s, in the 50s, were approached, especially Ward Kimball, that was the creator of Jiminy Cricket, by the government to do some kind of disclosure film. I also have one of their films that was on TV for a very, very short time called Alien Encounters. It was on for, for like one day, and I have a copy of that. And it's got Clifford Stone. It's got major players in this Walt Disney production, and so I, you know, the there has been an effort, uh, with documents, if you want to look at documents, with players, with whistleblowers, to give their impression, and I'm gonna say give their impression of what's going on, because I think even the military has no idea what's going on. But if you study okay, but if we aspects, don't
1: know what's going on, how do we have an institute to explore what we don't know is going on? That's been
3: the problem here. Well, you can, stu- you can still study these things. I mean, my first class is about the day the earth stood still and what the message is. And ironically enough, the day the earth stood still, a film is coming out again for some reason.
4: Well, they're uh, remaking it, know. yes, yeah
3: yeah it's a remake, but I don't believe anything is serendipitous. I think that there is heavy manipulation you probably agree with this heavy manipulation of planet Earth, heavy manipulation of the masses. and I think when you study the UFO phenomenon in a political or a manipulative situation, also with with whistleblowers that have come out, whether it be Colonel Corso or you know uh, other people that have been in the military, I think it's worth studying. What I think that you're talking about, and I agree with you on this, I don't think there are any conclusions. But I certainly think that the material is worth studying, the books are worth reading, and it's an educational process. The alternative, Gene and David, is to do nothing.
1: How about the third alternative, which is, let's find out what these things are, what their meaning <laughs> is, what possible threat they may present to us or benefit. And let's explore that before we go to the next step, which is to look at the key actors and the institutions and political processes. I think that's way,
3: way premature. Well, isn't that the same thing, though? I mean, the key actors are the military whistleblowers. The first class that I teach is all the whistleblowers, and they are word-for-word. Okay, now, key
1: actors, What the point is here, it's not defining key actors. This implies the key actors have to do with extraterrestrial life. And you're saying it's not extraterrestrial life that represents key actors. It is the whistleblowers who are the people who are pushing for quote-unquote disclosure.
3: Yeah, like all the people that were at Stephen Greer 2000, you know, uh, 2000, I think it was one disclosure you know, meeting in Washington. Some of those people he fl- filmed in Italy because I was part of that. And, and those military people that, that gave him testimony in Italy were telling the truth. They they had worked on bases, they had seen things, and I think that if you look at everybody's testimony, we got so much of it. You've got to admit, we've got so much uh, testimony that is credible from credible witnesses. I'm not talking contactees here. I'm talking credible witnesses that were involved in one way or another. That, you know, uh, this is worth studying. And sometimes if you read it and read the books around it, you know, you can put together the picture yourself. I mean, I'm all for connecting the dots. I'm all for that. So, and I don't believe
4: that.
2: Let's add some new dots to the picture then, because now you've brought up the disclosure event that uh, Stephen Gribb put together in 2001. You've also Mm -hmm. brought up now more than a couple of times Clifford Stone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you were at Clifford Stone's house, you say you saw documents that convinced you that he was telling the truth about having knowledge about 57 separate species of aliens reportedly involved with the planet Earth. Could you please tell us, could you please give us specific cited references to documents that would have helped you come to the conclusion that Clifford Stone was being genuine in his description of his encounters?
3: Well, you know, that's a really hard question since I would have to have the documents before me. But if you want to see them, they're in a book called UFOs Are Real that was put out by Simon & Schuster, again, Bill Burns, of the documents that Clifford Stone downloaded. And the thing about the 57 different different uh, groups, I was told something on that number by Colonel Corso also. So I have two military witnesses that have said there are more than just graves, which is what we're used to in our you know commercialized society here in the states where we wear the t-shirts and the magnets and everything else that's out there there are more than just that uh, there is all kinds of beings supposedly that are visiting this planet I think that's worth studying in itself the documents that you're talking about I would have to have before me but that book has them all in there if anybody wants to do some real studying. You know, Clifford Stone...
1: Wait a minute, you said you saw the documents as opposed to these yeah, documents the Yeah, he has others.
3: I just talked to him. He's bringing the DVDs to the Bay Area of these documents, and he'll bring them with him. Because, I mean, he, he gives them away to people. If they start way back in the, in the, you know, Blue Book days. But Clifford Stone, for some reason, knows where to look. He knows what the passwords are, and he's been able to get these these documents. I have given them, when I get them, since I don't deal in documents, up, I give them, up. let me finish, I give them to, to Richard Dolan, mm-hmm. who's using them in his books, and he's a very good researcher. I give them away, I give them to people who deal with documents. But you know, when I'm at Clifford's, I'm there socially. So I'm there for dinner, and I, he shows me these things, and I see these things.
2: <laughs> Alright, so, so when you were talking about doing extensive investigation to clifford now you're saying you were there for dinner okay
3: well i'm here uh, gabbing with him, and he brings them out and he has given them to me to bring to italy to give Mm -hmm. to people like richard dolan see i don't deal i've seen the documents documents still interest me as much as witness testimony in person i need to talk to the people but we got to remember that clifford stone is also witness clifford stone says he cleaned crashes eight of them it names one of them, Indian Town Cap, Pennsylvania, 1969. His first when he was very young. So, what what the real deal is here is do we believe Clifford Stone? That is what the real deal is.
2: It's it's also interesting that you bring up Richard Dolan, who we really like on this show. I happen to personally think he is one of the most important researchers in the field. It's interesting you did. Oh, yeah. I uh, think which, of course, is the very best. Absolutely. It's interesting you didn't bring up his book, UFOs in the National Security State, in terms of uh, your reading list. I, I thought no, that was interesting. My... <laughs> I didn't say anything about it.
0: Well, I'm I just know, saying. The
3: reason, and there's a reason. Can I tell you the reason? It, sure. It would be for that person that is very serious about this area to read that book, because that book is the best book written. But what we got out there, and you've got to agree, we've got... Fans, aficionados, people that aren't doing any in depth research, and, and they want something quick and easy. They want something, you know, they want something short, quick, and easy. And the books that I mentioned, I mean, Alan Hynek's book and Corso's book and so forth, are for them probably easier. But Richard Dolan, and I've, I've been on stage and said he's the best we've got because he's the most, he's the most, but then again.
1: All the place. We're talking about. Clifford Stone for a moment, and the authenticity of his evidence. Well, no, because we started with Clifford Stone, we kind of segued to Richard Dolan. And I haven't read his second book, which is still in production, so we have to see just how he does treat the Clifford Stone affair. But let's look at that in more detail here. So basically... Did you or did you not see evidence or were you just talking to him at dinner and he showed you a few letters No, and that's no, no. It?
3: Every time you talk to him, he pulls out documents. I mean, uh, he's well, if you go to listen to his uh, talk in Roswell, he's got documents with him. He's got CDs he hands out. He's really into disclosure. I did see evidence, and that isn't the only evidence. If you look at the MJ-12 documents, Ryan Wood lives close to me right here, and I've seen evidence there, too. And his book, Magic Eyes Only, has all the list of the Presumed crashes so what I'm doing is studying this I mean I think sometimes I'm the only one that reads anything uh, on this you know it's very difficult the reason why I like the Institute and so forth in that kind of approach is because it's a study you're not coming off the top of your head you read the material you can put together some things
2: all right on your faculty page in the exopolitics Institute one of your classes that you teach you teach two classes, Key whistleblowers in contact, he's best three, evidence.
3: Three of them now, yeah. All
2: right, so three of them. And then another one is developing the road to disclosure, quantum cosmology. All right, we're in the first day of class, and you are going to give the class an overview of the content of the course. What is the definition? What is your working definition of quantum cosmology?
3: Well, that came out of Edgar Mitchell. You know, I, I had an interview with Edgar Mitchell. He's part of the my class, his word-for-word word interview, and he, he defines this study is quantum cosmology because he doesn't think it's just UFOs and he doesn't think it's just you know physical UFOs. He, he links it to what this could mean for the planet and the fact that it's linked to quantum physics. And so what I do in that particular course is, is have people read his interview, what he says, what other people say, talk about the new quantum physics and how that could all go into the, you know, the dimensional paradigm and and that's a key term that he's coined, and I thought it would be good because it, it, it doesn't talk about any more the the cut and dry crafts and and the sightings, but it goes into the implications, the philosophy, what it could mean for the earth. You know, cosmology is is our relationship to the stars, to the you know the, the um, our, our relationship to the whole entire cosmos and. In that course, too, is what uh, Dr. John Mack had to say about it, our new world view, how we see ourselves in the box. And, you know, the course is, is what other people have told me. I mean, it's, it's putting together this, plus when you do the course, you put together your ideas. You try to figure it out yourself. You try to share with other people. It's a brainstorming. It's a Socratic method. And there is no right answer.
2: Are you going to tell me, that's what you would tell me if I was a student in your class and I asked you for a definition of quantum cosmology, that would yeah, be your response? Yeah, quantum
3: cosmology is our relationship to the universe in a quantum physics uh, context. Yeah. Our relationship, it has, to, it has to be simple. Our relationship to the universe in a quantum physics context. And this includes a whole bunch of subtitles.
1: Okay, but what do you yeah, know about that's, quantum that's, physics? Pardon me? Are you educated in quantum physics? Are you a physicist? What qualifies you to talk about quantum physics or even summarize that?
3: Well, the thing. Well, you're asking a very okay. What you we don't talk about quantum physics as physicists. We look at the new quantum. Physics and the new, uh, you know, the new discoveries, and they're, and they're out there. I mentioned Dean Radin yesterday. I mentioned you know, that I had spoken at IONS, which is Edgar Mitchell's you know, uh, association. And now science, or advanced quantum physics, is coming together with the paranormal and working with that. And there are so many articles out there. You don't have to be qualified to read an article on this, I hope. And so what happens is that the articles are what are studied in the course.
4: Hi, this is Timothy Green-Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail, and all you have to do is email me at Mr UFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications, but we do need your actual address, because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. You're a Luke Harris, with G.S.
0: Starr- and David Bienti. You never know what's going to happen
4: next.
1: We're talking to Paula Harris, and she is a UFO investigator, and she's associated with Teaching exopolitics, and we're discussing right now her particular interactions. But okay, you don't have to be an expert on quantum physics certainly to read about it. But when you become a teacher, an instructor, and you're using quantum physics in the title of the course, it ter- uses the term quantum
2: cosmology. Paula, yes. the definition that you're giving has nothing to do with physics. You are stating that quantum cosmology somehow involves our relationship to the universe. That is spirituality. That has nothing to do with physics. It has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. So, again, I ask
3: you, are you well, telling me that... Agree, we would have to agree on what you just said, uh, but it has to do, that spirituality has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. We would have to agree with that. I mean, I would have to agree with that, and I don't agree with that. So I don't mm-hmm. know what to, I don't know how to how to answer your question. I think it's all connected. I don't see things compartmentalized, David and and Jean. I just don't. I mean, I see it being all part of one. I see. A, but, a, a, but
2: if you're if you're in an educational environment in that context, you cannot just put out your feeling and state this as fact in order to teach a course... There is no feeling
3: in the curriculum. The feeling in the curriculum can can come from the student. It certainly doesn't come from the instructor. You know, I don't put out any of that and neither in my books. If you'd read my books, you would see there's no feeling in there. It's giving direct information. It's giving stimulus that people can react to. I very rarely give uh, my feelings or what I think. Very rarely. Really? that influences people. You know, even when you're doing a radio uh broadcast or when you're interviewing people mm-hmm. it's it's I find this is just Paula. I just find that keeping feelings and what I think out of it makes for a better for a better understanding. But asking the person what they do is is all that should be, not what my feelings are or what my opinion is, because that colors the whole entire thing. So and that I, that's the last thing I wanna okay. do is I'm gonna color All right, so so
2: let's put our feelings out of it then. What is your response to Edgar Mitchell's stated feelings that Dr. Stephen Greer has gone seriously awry in his Disclosure Project and Dr. Mitchell feels that the pool was polluted in the Disclosure Project when you had credible witnesses like Captain Robert Salas on a stage with people like Clifford Stone, who have not been vetted, who have not have had the accuracy of their statements in any way proven. How do you? What's your response to Dr. Edgar Mitchell's feelings that Dr. Well, Greer is, is going down? A, 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 okay, so so then
3: I respect him, and he could be right. I mean, for the way he looks at it, that he could be right. But I don't have to agree with that. But I respect that. I don't have to agree with it, but I respect that. You know. I think that, you know, again, I'm going to go on record saying, I think that doing something is better than doing nothing. (laughs) And whether you're going to just talk about Clifford Stones, there were so many other people there. And those people were worth it. They were worth it. They they, they risked their lives on top of it. I know because I worked on the Italian part of that. I mean, I worked on the filming of the Italian witnesses, and those people had credentials.
2: The most credible witnesses that participated in that event have since gone to length to distance themselves from the whole situation. There are a number of, of us who in fact feel that what really happened then was that the pool was peed in, that essentially good witnesses were thrown in with bad into the same stew, and essentially what really happened is that the credible people got Uh, put in a position where their stories were now being associated with stories that were highly questionable and maybe their testimony has now been used essentially against them. There are a number of the people who were involved in that event who have certainly put those feelings forward. There are other people noticeable by their absence, but now we have to get right to the core of what we're talking about, Paula. My first encounter with you was sitting and watching your entire presentation at Atlantic City. My girlfriend was with me, other people who are friends of mine were with me at that event, and if you remember, and I'm sure that you do, not ten minutes after you were done, I came out and I asked you the following question, and I'll ask it to you now on the show. Why do you feel that Billy Meyer is, and I quote, the real deal? You said that to an audience. That is not anything but an opinion. It's an editorial voice. You said to an audience of people that Billy Meyer is the real deal. What do you use to back up that statement of opinion that you said publicly?
4: Something
3: that other people don't have, and that is having gone there and spoken to him and spoken to the group. That, and, and seen the evidence. I have gone to Schmidt-Rudy in Switzerland. I could never say this unless I had done that. I, I don't do anything unless I go there in person and look at the person and look at the evidence. I think, and, and I will go on record saying that most contactee stories at some point, and it could be their own fault, get contaminated. So I, I think Billy Meyer initially had those contacts. I think the film footage that the Japanese Nippon Corporation bought those five films, and I have two of them here, are real. Those are UFOs, not on a string over a major highway, and cars are going underneath. But I think somewhere along the line, and we tend to do this on planet Earth, what we do is we make gurus or you know uh, adore or or have groups and cults around these people and I think that's the part that's contaminated around Billy Meyer I think the initial contacts are real I think everything after that I question and especially the people that come around these people after their initial contacts they start organizations and and this is what I find as far as the rule of thumb but how do I think he's real? I looked, I, I was there. I was there for a whole Sunday and I saw the material. Now, do I believe what the Pleiadians told him? Not necessarily. I don't think all aliens tell the truth. So, you know, the thing is that, yeah, I think he had these contacts. I think the Billy is the real deal from having been there and seen the material.
2: So what material did you see?
3: I saw the the film footage, the you know movie film footage. I saw the over 100 photographs that he has because you're, when you're there, it's a very informal situation. You saw uh, negatives.
2: And, you saw negatives. Original negatives.
3: No, I saw the original uh, you know pictures. They're 35 millimeter. There's no digital. There's uh, you know. Excuse me. Picture.
2: 35 millimeter is a format <laughs> of film. If you say you saw the 35 millimeter, you're telling us you saw negatives then.
3: Yeah, no, I saw the 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 pictures. I also spoke to Wendell Stevens. Paula, Paula, stop.
2: Just stop. Okay, just stop. You say you saw pictures. Okay, Mm -hmm. if you're going to talk about a technical topic, please be specific. Okay, when you say you saw pictures, photographic prints or photographic prints you saw?
3: Yeah, I saw photographic prints. In fact, Uh, I have some of them. I have photographic prints.
2: Photographic yeah, prints made yeah, from have- the negatives? Made from the negatives? You see, if we're going to talk about photographic evidence, you have to be very specific when you will go on record saying that you think that these are real photos of real unidentified flying objects. The one area that I am an expert in is digital and analog image analysis. I have looked at a good number of the photographs, and it is absolutely clear that they are photographs of miniatures models multiple exposures that is my professional experience and I can back it up with specific technical details this is not about feelings or I think I know no, okay I now
3: okay it. I I respect your opinion I asked Wendell Stevens about that he is the original investigator but what credibility In does County Wendell Stevens
1: of- have he has no credibility anymore
3: yeah, but- Oh, okay. Well, there, there you go. Uh, there, well, the, you that you. How do you regard? Really is he okay. a photo
1: expert? Is he a photo imaging expert? He was expert?
3: there during this this situation. He saw things uh, that, that happened. He saw Billy Meyer walk out when he was called. He saw the footprints disappear in the snow, and he heard and and Billy that called from two villages over to be picked up. So when someone investigates...
1: Right, but investigate. we're talking about the photos. You're changing the subject. We're talking about no, the photos. No, I'm talking
3: about the Billy Meyer case. But you said you saw... I'm really saw uncomfortable a, a, talking about this because you already have what you want that you don't believe is real. I disagree. So where could we possibly go with this conversation?
1: Very simple. We've explained to you that David is an image expert. Yeah, but where we editing go with this expert conversation? we can't because uh, i mean what can't...
3: direction would we go in because okay. uh, you know to avoid a lot of back and forth if uh, i just disagree can we leave it at that
1: brain tonic the smart antidote to head fog the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Eerie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at
3: www.eerieradio.com.
4: Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg, David Gedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk.
1: On the PowerCast, we are talking to Paula Harris, and now we're focusing on the Billy Meyer claims because she finds at least the early ones credible. Here's the issue. You are not a photo expert. you agree to that, right, so far, right? Yeah, David. You're yeah, an I'm expert okay. in image editing. David is an expert. So we have an expert opinion from someone who has analyzed some of these photos, has looked at the rest, and used a lifetime of knowledge and expertise to evaluate them and say... They're fake. Then we have you saying, "Well, you're willing to accept them as credible, but it even gets better than that because, Paula, I'm saying I looked
2: at one specific aspect of the evidence, and it is without a question in my mind completely fabricated and hoaxed. You're saying that you disagree with that. So basically, no.
3: I asked Wendell Stevens about the models, and he said he Wendell himself. He said he created models in order to show that the other ones were real. And I said, Wendell, you really, you know, he, well, this happens often. I, Wendell said he was involved there because what what it was, was he was trying to prove how it couldn't be, you know, models. So now you've got the model pictures mixed up with the real pictures, and who wants to touch that with a 10-foot pole? Wendell Stevens you know, was so I, much, I said that excuse to him. me. That's
2: right, and Wendell Stevens was someone who stood to benefit directly from supporting this case as genuine, given that he was putting out books for money so so in in Wendell Stevens case See, everybody his puts motive out clear. Books
3: for money, come on, even, everybody that writes the book, so I can't use that argument. I use the argument that it was messed up and contaminated by doing such a thing as photographing models too, you know, and I told Wendell that, however, since I met Billy Meyer i You know, have read the material in in depth. Something happened. Did you, Rudy? Somebody or some contact happened. In in all contactee stories, we get to a point where it gets very tricky. And this is why I stick with the military, with the with the whistleblowers, with other kinds of stories, and don't get into this because I can give you a list of contactee stories. You got into Uh, it
2: at the Atlantic City event. Nobody asked you to put the Billy Meyer images up. You put yeah, them I, up there and said they were that he was the real yeah. deal. Uh,
4: did I you not? You did Billy say Meyer that
3: right? Is the real deal because he encountered human type aliens? I, it was in the context of the fact that all aliens are not greys. And here so you're that's saying what the that context he was if you paid attention huh. to the presentation. Oh, I, I paid very to all close attention. The peop- you all are the saying all that contacted human type aliens because I want to take the focus off the great extraterrestrial biological entities and okay I'll repeat it one more time I really believe he had contacts, especially in the beginning I don't want to go into the 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 movie have you seen the movie footage
2: they're nonsense of course I've seen the movie footage why wouldn't you find
3: Japan buy them just to put them out as entertainment
2: absolutely because television has nothing to do with the truth it's about entertainment and when you say that he's the real deal, let's be very clear about this. You're not saying that he says he's the real deal. You're saying he is the real deal. Therefore, you you an opinion,
3: adding, okay? I think that we could leave it at that because other than that, it's just going to get, you know, I, but, I, yes. Right, didn't you say let's opinions have nothing to do and with the journalism?
2: Else. Paula, you're contradicting yourself now blatantly and openly. You're saying that opinions have no place in journalistic work, and yet you're saying here that your opinion is the overriding element in your coverage of this.
3: No, th- this I'm not. No. I have other information on Billy Meyer that comes from intelligence sources that say he's the real deal. I'm not going to go into really? that. Yeah, you're not, not gonna you gonna make a statement that, like that,
2: you're not going to go into it.
3: No, because a lot of what's told to me is is confidential and the and the truth of the matter is that all you want from me really is whether I believe Billy Meyer is the real deal. Anything you want to add to that, go ahead and add to it. I really believe with the things that have happened plus going there, I don't know how many people are making judgments without ever, ever having met these people, met the contactees or been there. You know, the people that don't believe in Roswell, don't go there and talk to the people that are still alive. That, yeah, if you, if you, I think the discussion can be closed with, I do believe that. And anything you want to say about me, my personality, my way of dealing with things, you go ahead. But, yes, I think that Billy Meyer, but I do believe the story has been contaminated, major big time. I will not, I, anything that's happening from here with Billy Meyer, I'm not, uh, I'm not you know, real convinced. From here well, on in.
2: No, no. given that the U.S. representative
1: has attacked you personally.
3: Yeah, I know. You, right.
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, actually, that so might be a feather in your cap. Well, that might worse, be something that, good. Yeah.
3: The worst situation that I, I've ever encountered professionally.
2: Paula, have <laughs> you ever met a contact to you who you didn't believe?
3: Yes, many. i done the story and then not printed it because then I've come to conclusion. But I have ways of finding out. So the thing is that. Uh, well, yeah, well, well how do you
1: have ways of finding out?
3: Yeah, I have my own sources that I, you know, ask uh, about whether it's valid, and I have what you call a gut feeling if someone's telling me the truth, especially if I'm looking at them, and if they're telling me these things, and if they change their story, I can tell. That's part of the professionality of an interviewer, that, you know, of asking the right questions, you can tell. And as far as the representatives... (laughs) Billy Meyer, I never want to get in that kind of discussion, you know, which is a very low level discussion, you know, with personality bashing. I never want to get into that because I don't know if you've ever heard me speak. I will not bash any of my colleagues, ever. I mean, I can't do that. Whether I believe them or whether I, you know, they're out there, you know, saying things that are I can't do that on a professional level and since I can't do that, I won't support that in any way. Not on on the stage, not on a professional level like that.
1: Okay, let's move beyond Billy Meyer. Okay, all right, so you believe it, whatever. Now, I will say something in a positive way that I do think some of the contactees out there did have real experiences that may have been contaminated by them seeking another 15 minutes of fame or by others Unfortunately, what happens when situations like that arise where evidence is posted that is shown to be fake, that contaminates the entire pool. And rather than trying to find a nugget of truth, I would sooner go elsewhere because I think you might just be finding yourself in quicksand.
3: Absolutely, and I have several other contactees this has has happened with, and so I don't go there very often. If If I deal with a contactee, it has to be somebody that's, that has some substance. Because okay, but you're talking
1: also about having these sources that you can't name. These are military sources? No,
3: intelligence. Intelligence. intelligence.
1: intelligence. They work for American intelligence, foreign intelligence. Well, line.
3: in the case of the Billy Meyer, it was a friend of Werner von Braun that was in Florence that had some documents because uh, NASA was very interested in in, uh, in Billy Meyer. How would know you know that?
1: How would you know that?
3: Because I saw the the letters. I saw the things, the, uh, the material around it. So, Of course they would be. These pictures are so darn clear, they're the only clear pictures that ever came out.
2: The pictures are nonsense.
3: They're nonsense. Let's the subject. What else did you want to ask me around the context?
1: Well, Uh, once we got into that, as soon as you got back into the pictures, the pictures we've seen are nonsense. I'll accept what David says. I'll accept it not because it's just an opinion and an opinion is a dime a dozen, but because we need the respect here. David presents an expert opinion. Okay. okay. You're not a photo odd. analyst That's expert. That. I'm not an expert. Okay. He's the expert, okay?
3: I agree. Okay, now let's go on to, you asked me how I, how I had, uh, you know, the sources.
1: Okay, so you have intelligence sources. This person who was a friend or colleague of Von Braun, he was I read in...
3: I letters to him, yeah, I saw the letters and I Okay, the but this particular person, American. let's go
1: back to who the person is or was. He worked for intelligence agencies in America, in Europe, where...
3: No, Von Braun himself was the one expressing the opinions. There was Von Braun letters.
1: Okay, these are letters. Okay, but the person who showed you these yeah, letters, yeah. he was in
3: intelligence or what? He was in the military, but, you know, he was in the French military. This is one of the cases that I did. I did a case in my book with Guy Andronique. He was in the French military. He was one of the witnesses in my book. And that it came through that. But I don't want to do He got any a letter from Von Braun. He got letters from I, Von Braun. I, some of these things that come to me. The people tell me because they are they have these this material are you know my sources. So, can we talk about contactees or or what do you want to talk about? You know. Well, the
1: the fact is here, if you're getting information from sources, we'd like to know more about the sources because, you know, we want to find out if this is information that we can depend upon. And
3: you know, I don't think we can go very many places because, as you said. You, uh, you know, I, I respect also, you know, David, and that's what he believes. So let's go on to something else.
1: We're talking about your sources. We're not talking about what David believes or, did, or what his yes, expert, expert opinion about might the Meier be. Meier
3: no, we're the talking in general now.
1: Be. You're saying that you're using sources. You're mm-hmm. using sources of information said to be intelligence-related and I'm trying to kind of focus in on that. Do you want
3: examples that I don't mind? I want thinking. one example.
1: So far, I don't have any example. I have a person who was a witness or something who showed you letters from Von Braun, but he worked in the military. He wasn't in intelligence. So, who this are this the an intelligence anyway, this sources?
3: Isn't in America. And I don't want to go any farther on that, but I can give you an example of, of sources that come forth. Because you asked me about sources, I when I was doing the Michael Wolf story, and I'm surprised you even not asked me about that. Because that's probably the most controversial story I've ever done, the Michael Wolf cruvant story about his being a double agent in Rome. You know that's been on the internet that all of this is crazy, that none of it happened. When we were translating his book, we did have a person from the uh, from the Italian intelligence. You know he is now deceased, but he came to my boss. He sat on the table and he said you're working on michael wolf Couvant." and uh and my boss said yes we were translating the book he said that he was a double agent in rome and to be careful because he also worked for the israeli intelligence and so we were warned about that you know doing the story on michael wolf and i realized that when i did the story on wolf here i had so much backlash because that story must be really really important and really really controversial
2: well, tell us the story then. What's the story with Michael Wolf?
3: Well, Michael Wolf wrote a book called A Catchers of Heaven. It came out in, I think, 1996. And he claims that he was a contactee, very much like Clifford Stone, who was an interface with uh, human type aliens. But in the process, because of his high intelligence quotient, he was indoctrinated in, into the CIA and worked in as a double agent in several countries, including Italy, and we verified that he was in Italy. And he has the story that he, he has given a lot of information. He gave the information to me about the fact that there was a deep space platform of military astronauts. So this is one of the things he talked about. He talked about so many things that it would take hours to go into them. And we find that Gary McKinnon hacks into a, you know a website and finds a list of astronauts that are not... Our astronauts, it seemed like military astronauts have different names and different assignments. Now, Wolf told me this before the year 2000. Wolf's background is in black ops programs and the, the interesting thing is when I went to visit him he had certificates of the New York Academy of Sciences with six PhD's on there so I got into a discussion with other researchers and this happens often and I suggested the researchers go ask the New York Academy of Sciences why they give six PhD's to someone who you can't find their credentials so we've got like really tricky situations and dr Wolf's story is fascinating at uh, first well, i suggest that people read catchers of heaven if they can get the book
2: what are the more controversial aspects of it i mean if you had to list the top three controversial aspects of his claims
3: you mean that other people think are controversial you yeah. can't find any of his degrees much like the bob lazar situation they, uh, he says he has a phd in uh, electromagnetic in uh, neurology and in genetics and so forth when i interviewed him he told me that universities and and where and how he lived there and so forth then that's the one the the documents you always have a problem when you have somebody who says they've done something and you can't find the documentation and Wolf said that's part of the working in black ops the second one is that he never left the country that he was in some rest home somewhere and never left the country well we found out he did leave the country and because we're on the other side of the ocean we can check on it and the third thing he talks about is that he has information about interfacing with human-type aliens on the S-4 facility of the Area 51 base, which interests me a lot because I'm trying to get away from the emphasis we have on these biological entities being the only type of visitors. You know, if we have all these visitors from different planets, can we know who some of them are other than the greys? You know, that's, those are the three... Uh, Major points to that story. And in the future, he actually would call me in Rome once a week, and I had to tape everything. He required that I tape it. So I have these audio tapes in the future when the book comes out. I'd love to do an interview on, after you read the book, you know, what to discuss about that case. (sighs) Hello? (laughs)
1: Well, all right. So basically, if some of this stuff is not turning out to be accurate, authentic, where do you go? Do you even bother any further?
3: Where do you go? Is that yeah. a pathetic Yeah. Okay, well, when you're dealing with a lot of... And you know this, a lot of nefarious stuff, you know, in the UFO especially database of the people that worked in black ops programs, the people that were involved. It's really tricky. All you can do, and as I said before, if I write a book, it's going to be the word-for-word uh, interviews and, and the questions I ask because I'm just like you. I want to know. I want to know, I want you to give me proof, and I'm asking you this stuff. This is what you're going to get with the Michael Wolf story, the questions I asked and the answers he gave. You know, it's really difficult to go after a certain point to prove a lot of this. It's such a, an incredible area. All you can do is try. I don't okay,
1: but I think if that. you find good reason to doubt a claim, you go beyond it. Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death and much much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730. Or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Paula Harris. She is a UFO investigator involved also in exopolitics. And we're covering a number of the things that she has explored. What we do, and I guess the only thing we can do, there's so much evidence out there. If something doesn't pass muster, even if it's part of it, seems suspicious, we're going to go to the next thing. Because once the waters are polluted, forget about it. That's kind of a philosophy here. That you can't say, well, maybe there is a little element of truth here, but it's covered up because of the followers or it's disappeared because of the fact that maybe the person decided they needed more than 15 minutes of fame. I understand that, but we don't have time to waste our efforts on that. There's too much other good stuff out there that we have to understand about these various subjects that does pass mustard. Follow my line of thinking here?
3: Who decides, though, what passes mustard? I'm really curious because I really am interested.
1: Well, I'll give you an
2: example. In the case of photographic evidence, people who have expertise in the field, Paula, when you gave your presentation in Atlantic City, at one point you talked about the O'Hare case, which was probably one of the most fascinating cases in contemporary times in November uh, 6, 2006 or November 7th, I think. You showed some images. Now, I took particular interest. interest in that because our unofficial third host, Jeff Ritzman, and myself did all of the early image analysis work on the images that came forward that were were supposed to be reportedly were images of the UFO taken at O'Hare to the extent where we were involved in working with NARCAP on their report about the incident. The images that we debunked early on within like the first week of these things starting to flow into AboveTopSecret.com, Two of those images you presented on the screen when you talked about O'Hare. Now, did you know those images, a long time before you showed them in that presentation, had been absolutely positively and rather handily debunked by us? Were you aware of that?
3: Not by you, but I know that I, that was just an example I used. I don't even know if that airport was O'Hare. It was an example to, that I used you know, just photographically, but I never claimed those were the real images. There's no part of my presentation that said that. But, but you because never claimed... Because I don't claimed, think there, the images no, would ever come out, from what I understand, no,
2: There was no disclaimer that they weren't real images. You were talking about O'Hare, and you had the images up on the screen. You didn't say those are example images, or those aren't real images, or maybe that's not O'Hare... You're saying that now, but you didn't say it in the presentation. Well, actually,
3: I'm saying that now. I'll say that in the future. I mean, thanks to you. I, that, you know, I will say that in the future. But I don't consider that very serious. I'm sorry, because you are an image person. You probably consider it more serious than I do. The O'Hare case is serious. The, the fact that I, it, it, it's any airport that has any, uh, you know, those images or any whatever, airport, or, it's an example. I never said these are the images of the O'Hare case because there, there are images. I talked to James Fox. There are images; they haven't been released. And so the thing is that that are you, can I ask you in general? Are you basing on your cases on photographic evidence? I mean, because I'm curious. Because if that's the case, you might have some very interesting. You might have some very interesting proof for us.
2: When people come forward with photographic evidence and offer that, then uh, certainly I'm interested in the case. I don't know what logic one would use to then say that. Perhaps I'm only interested in cases with photographic evidence. The experiences that I've had, I have no photographic evidence for because at the time that they happened, it's not like people walked around with cameras around their necks. And that's, of course, a whole other topic about
3: people asking why. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic as to whether you really have the experience. You know, it's really complicated, David. I mean, it's really complicated because I didn't question your experience. And, and neither did I ask for photographic evidence. But mm-hmm. if that is the, the rule of thumb that we're using is photographic evidence, then I, I need to know that. In well, a- what,
2: what kind of logic are we talking about? I'm saying that when people come forward and base the veracity of their claim on photographic evidence, like Billy Meyer does, because that's pretty much all the guy's got is photographic evidence, as far as I'm concerned. He claims to have metal evidence. No one's seen it, except for one dead IBM scientist who was not an expert
3: in metal. No, actually, the Japanese have it on film, and they also have analyzed it on film. The Nippon people have the pieces, and they're analyzing them on that movie.
2: That's news to me. Uh, Meanwhile, I've looked at the photographic evidence. I've looked at the film. Basically, anybody who's going to look at that stuff and feel that it's legitimate or compelling, in my mind, just is not being legitimate. That's the bottom line. They're, They're not... At that point, it's like looking at a picture of a visual effect from a movie and saying, oh, yeah, that happened. It's like, come on, are, are you serious? I, you know, And we can go through the photographic evidence of the Billy Meyer stuff, and it gets sillier and sillier. We have definitive corroboration that images that he showed of dinosaurs. Yeah, he got on a UFO, went back in time, saw dinosaurs, took pictures of them. They just happened to coincide with illustrations in a book. But exactly, and he presented this as real. I mean, so I'm if never someone,
3: seen, you know, I've never seen that at all.
2: Oh, they're they they
3: in a presentation. I've never seen those oh,
2: well then, I guess you, you haven't really researched the case very intensely. I, I would suggest the images are all over the place, and and, and again, our
3: images are all absolutely. over the place. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. I would recommend you go and look at the work done by uh, Derek Bartholomew. Yeah, we
3: always keep going back to Billy Meyer, though, and, and my body of, of research is so much wider than the Billy Meyer case. I'm not first. talking,
2: yeah, we're not talking about but Billy Meyer interviews. specifically.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Yeah, it's something that. that we go yeah, back thanks. to
2: it because I'm questioning your methods of vetting witnesses, your methods of analyzing evidence. I don't see any vetting going on. I really don't and that's just from where i'm looking at this all i'm basing my opinion about your work is on a presentation i saw you give and i don't okay, think that's well, you
3: already had that preconception before you even interviewed me and that's sad in a way yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's sad because we can never really have an open-minded conversation since you've already formed an opinion before but yeah. see, this opinions is are so terrible aren't they yeah. so david and gene i'm trying to avoid this kind of thing I really have to get to know the people, and we haven't spent any heavy time together. So the no. thing is that uh, uh, based on that and based on the preconceived that you had,
4: yeah.
3: that's where we're going, and that's very bad okay. for me. Okay,
1: you know that's what? A- I think that's a good way to end it right Truth here. good way to end right? it. That's right. Indeed. Paula Harris, author of some books on UFOs, and we'll have a link to her site over at thepowercast.com. Thanks for joining us on the PowerCast.
0: Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack Attack, of the Rockoids. The the former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack Attack, of the Rockoids Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S.com. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockoids, Rockoids. a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Beatty. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You know, with all the guests that we've had on the PowerCast, and we've had some pretty crazy people, Mm -hmm. we've never really thrown them off the air and said, okay, that's it. Sayonara, baby. Right, right. There are exceptions. This was the exception. Yeah,
2: this was uh, ridiculous. We have to give people a chance to say their piece, but, you know, this person is teaching classes. Quantum cosmology is about our relationship to the universe. Come on, come on. Are you serious? And this is why we are in the political situation we are in today, Gene. Because of this completely soft thinking, this I'm going to buy anything, I'll believe everything. Every opinion is valid. Every opinion is valid. No. Every opinion is not valid. Everybody is not a special snowflake. This is just ridiculous. And here she is, you know, speaking the same old speaking points about the Billy Meyer nonsense, Oh, you think it's ba- they're not legitimate images? Oh, okay, I guess you have an opinion. It's like, give me a break. Like my dear, wonderful Susan says, we have another member of the paranormal paparazzi. That's the deal. Name dropping, oh, I spent time with this person. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised Christopher Walken didn't come up in this conversation as she spent time talking about UFOs with Christopher Walken. Because, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for that to come out of her mouth any moment. What nonsense. And this idea of I'm going to put images up on the screen and they're just for wallpaper. I'm going to talk about O'Hare. I'm going to put up images that, oh, I don't know where they came from, but I hear they might be related to O'Hare. It wasn't just any picture of a UFO over an airport. There are pictures at that point that we knew to be fabricated hoax images over what was supposedly O'Hare, which turned out to indeed be o- the O'Hare airport. But here she's now saying, well, I just put them in there for filler. Just to have something on the screen. I never said they were real. Also, I That's like her nonsense. intelligence
1: sources. I like her intelligence sources. You say, okay, yeah. what kind of intelligence sources? Suddenly there's somebody who was in the military who got letters from Von Braun, allegedly. Yeah. And we never really got her nailed down as to what kind of intelligence sources are helping her vet stuff. But then again, she says she doesn't vet things. She just presents things out in the open. She's no longer an author. Or an editor, she's just a message board. I mean, it's, we have a uh, forum on the PowerCasts, you know, <laughs> forums.thepowercast.com. And it's a community forum where people participate, where there's minimal censorship. I mean, if someone really gets offensive, we'll ban them. But 98% of the people on there post their points of view, ridiculous or not unfettered. Mm-hmm. Maybe Absolutely. her books are really Message forms. They're not books in the traditional sense. They're just basically forums, community forums where she presents the information that she sees. Maybe she should open up her mailbox then, you know, her inbox and present all the letters she gets from her inbox. After all, all this information is equally valid, requires equal attention. We should all think about it. This Duh. is why this
2: field is screwed. This is why this field basically. Has nowhere to go because you have people like this who are essentially behaving as entertainers. I'm sorry, it's just about being an entertainer at that point. There is no research going on here. Flying to someone's location and talking to them, sure, that's a great step, but if that's all you're going to do, if you're not going to apply any kind of analysis, any kind of critical thinking, discernment, logic to anything that you hear, Well, at that point, what are you doing? You're traveling and you're writing it off on your taxes. That's what you're doing. You you like to travel. Hey, I'm going to have a reason to go travel. I'll take the deductions for all these plane tickets on my income taxes by saying that I'm a researcher. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And, And the idea then... Of trying to make believe you're a faculty member of some educational institution, and when asked about the title of one of the three courses, sorry, not two, but three courses that she's teaching, to ask about quantum cosmology and get the response that I did was absolutely preposterous. Paula would be run out of any decent educational institution. I'm telling you,
1: it's just patent nonsense. You look at the mission yeah. statement of this Exopolitics Institute, it's based on a fantasy. Now, I guess the government doesn't really vet places that are nonprofit institutions, so you could be any sort of crazy religion or belief or system, whatever. And yeah. you get your charter to be a nonprofit corporation. It doesn't make you That's credible, right. folks.
2: I have to say this. So there are listeners who are probably right now going, so, so why did they have her on? Certainly they knew what they were getting into. You know, Paula's saying, well, you have your preconceived notions. Yeah, I sat through your presentation, Paula. I, I know what you're about. I've read some of the stuff that you've done online. It's clear what you're about. It's crystal clear to someone like me. I think to you, Gene, it's the same boat. So at that point, yeah, we do have our preconceived notions. We have you on the show. I think it's useful to have these people on, if for no other reason, so that our audience can hear someone who is not deploying any kind of logic to what they're spewing. I mean, she was pulling stuff in from the most ridiculous places. Let's throw Scientology into the mix and L. Ron Hubbard. You know, let's bring in the alien with the crystal on the headband around its head with the of light, blah, blah, blah. Let's look at, you know, let's look at everything. Let's make one big stew that is so indeterminate that is so murky that you can't draw any conclusions, and as long as you can't draw any conclusions, I can feed you something next year that you'll buy that will further confuse you, and further take you away from any understanding. Paranormal
1: paparazzi. We have yet another member. She's right up there with Rob Simone. Well, you know what? I Maybe think, let's use the conspiracy theory. Maybe she's a disinformation agent designed to confuse everybody. On the other hand, no. she contradicted herself, so I guess she confused herself. What Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so, again, in these situations, I think it's valuable for our
2: audience to have someone like her come on and basically spew for two hours, just spew stuff that is not tied together, that has no logic behind it, no critical thinking. There it is. There it is for everyone to see the most basic stuff. What is the meaning of the term you use in the title of your class, of the course you're teaching? And we get some new age woo-woo silliness and, and an admission. Oh, I am not. I don't know science, but here I'm going to use the scientific term in the title of my course because it sounds impressive, not because I can actually back it up with any kind of knowledge, any kind of
1: fact. It just sounds good. And that is the core gene of what we're talking about here. What we have here is using oh. science as a bullet point in an ad to sell a product. I mean, you mentioned features not to inform people, to advance their understanding of something, but to sell your product or service. Her product or service here is these courses. You pay for the courses and the money goes to a nonprofit organization, but I bet she gets a paycheck when she delivers those courses. Does she get a paycheck based on the number of people sign up? I don't know. I don't care, but she's not doing it for free, folks. This is everything that's wrong about the
2: field, Gene, encapsulated in two hours. It's everything that is counterproductive. It's everything that, quite frankly, we dislike. I'm going
1: to do this because I'll be self-serving. Go ahead. Name one other paranormal radio show on the planet that does what we just did this evening in terms of showing one of these fakers for what they really are. No one. Nobody does this but the Paracast. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and
4: David Biedny is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.